And I want to invite the rest of you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, while you're turning there, let me uh, just make you aware that a week from tomorrow is the beginning of VBS. Uh, we're excited that it's uh, really upon us. And there's some, some important things I want everybody to be aware of. Uh, a, a week from today at 10 o'clock, we, we won't be having, we'll pause our adult discipleship classes so that we can just have a VBS orientation meeting. All of you who are helping with VBS, if you can attend that meeting at 10 o'clock next Sunday, we'll be downstairs in the fellowship hall. If you haven't been down there to look at the, the marketplace, uh, it's all set up and it's looking really, really good. Uh, so that's next Sunday at 10. Um, registration's open. If, if your child or children are going or you've got friends or family, neighbors who are going, please like, let them register. Um, we're still receiving donations. Some of the supplies and snacks and things like that uh, are being collected downstairs in the fellowship hall. And then just lastly, I uh, want to remind you that every um, year for VBS, we, we wrap up Friday night with a movie night. Uh, we'll be out on the, the lawn there uh, watching the, the Prince of Egypt, which would, will coalesce really well with the theme. Uh, and it's a, it's a good time not only for the, the VBS families uh, to come together and you know, the parents get to, to mingle and stuff, uh, but, but our church family can, can uh, get to know some of these folks because over, I don't know what the percentage is this year, but overwhelmingly uh, the folks who are at VBS are not tab kids. So it's just a great way for us to welcome uh, new families and, and uh, be hospitable. Kona Ice Truck is going to be there too, just, just to mention. Yeah, all right. Um, so, so those are the VBS things I wanted to give you a heads up on. Uh, before we read... Hebrews 7, uh, verses 11 to 22, uh, I want to just kind of give you some context here. You know, I, I didn't grow up in the church at all, so uh, church ceremonies and um, liturgy was just all so completely brand new to me. Uh, as, a, as a senior in high school, when I started dating Kathy, who's now my wife, uh, she grew up Catholic. And that summer, I remember just going to, to Mass with her and just how fascinating and, and sort of curious I was with how all that worked. You know, the, the priests, the, the, the vestments, uh, the ceremonies, the words, and, and the up and the down and, and so on. Uh, and I know that some of you uh, maybe have come out of uh, a Catholic tradition or Episcopalian tradition, like a high church tradition. And uh, and, and maybe, maybe you look, you know, with fondness, and maybe you, you don't look with fondness on that. Some even, you know, kind of criticize all the smells and bells and all that. Well, no matter where you come from, there, there's some symbolism there uh, that, that's not accidental. Whether it's healthy or not, you know, that can be determined uh, based on, you know, whatever the, the actual ceremony you're looking at. But, uh, but when you go back into the Old Testament, you see a ton of ceremony, a ton of of, of, of uh, legislations and restrictions and, and, and proscriptions for what not to do and prescriptions for what to do. And it can be really confusing. So we need to look at, if he, uh, at Hebrews 7 to kind of get our bearings on what is the ceremonial law pointing to? Why does it exist? And how does it show us Jesus more clearly? So let's stand in honor of God's word. Uh, and I'm going to start in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek 
rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. But this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Let me pray for us. Lord, we give you thanks for Jesus, uh, our, our sure and, and better uh, guarantor. Uh, we thank you for his indestructible life, uh, this solid rock upon which we can build our life. And thank you uh, for the priesthood uh, that is his. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> So um, this passage, as, I, as I've said before in Hebrews, kind of requires us to do a deep dive. We've got to put that big bell helmet on, you know, and, and, and go down deep. So, so bear with me. I, I know there's going to be a number of scriptures uh, that I'm going to read. I'm going to try to, you know, keep it clipping along. But, but we've we got to get the context in order to know why is this being written? What's the point? And I think it's going to be pretty rewarding. Uh, I, hope, I hope you'll be encouraged. Uh, so we, we need to talk about the order of Aaron, uh, this Levitical priesthood that is uh, established in the Old Testament, uh, because that is a part of the ceremonial law, the, the bigger picture of the, 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 the laws that God gave to his people saying, this is how you're supposed to worship me. And if we understand what the ceremonial law is pointing to and what it's ultimately communicating, then we'll understand Jesus better, who himself is the guarantor of a better covenant, okay? Okay. Uh, so, so we want to start with the order of Aaron, this, this line of um, a part of the Levitical tribe who was called and chosen by God to be priests. Uh, not anybody could serve as the priest, as the person who would represent God to the people and who would represent the people to God. You, you couldn't just decide, hey, I'd like to do that. Uh, no, you had to be chosen by God to do that, uh, and he had really strict uh, requirements for that. So verses 13 and 14 in our passage this morning talk about how um, Jesus comes along, and he belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar, for it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. He's not a Levite. So what's going on with that? That's, that, that's the, the thing that Hebrews is addressing and solving for us as we think about that. Jesus is descended from Judah. That's the tribe of kings. You know, we just sang the lion of Judah, not the priest of Judah. There's no priest of Judah. There's only 
priests of, of Levi. Um, and this is in conjunction with uh, places like Exodus 28, where God tells Moses, bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons. And Aaron and Aaron's sons and Moses, who is Aaron's brother, are all Levites. You have to be from the tribe of Levi to be a priest. Um, there's an interesting uh, thing that happens because, you know, with, with any leadership uh, structure that gets put in place, inevitably somebody wants to challenge um, the leadership structure, and that's, you know, hey, God, God's people are not immune. When you get to the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, you see this episode in chapter 16 called Korah's Rebellion. And Korah and some of his uh, associates say, hey, Moses, hey, Aaron, hey, you know, you all who claim to be handpicked by God, uh, you, you're not the only ones who should be able to, to do this. And you got this whole episode called Korah's Rebellion. And God says, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put this debate to rest and I'm gonna demonstrate that I have uniquely chosen Aaron of the Levitical tribe to be my high priest. And it's, it, it almost sounds like, like a scene from a, an Indiana Jones movie where Moses tells all of the, the heads of the tribes, give me a staff, he takes all the staffs um, from all the tribes, and, and there's Aaron's staff. And he lays all those staffs in front of the Ark of the Covenant in the, in the tabernacle overnight. And the next morning, they go in and they, and they collect the staffs. So there's a, every tribe's name's been written on each respective staff. And, on, and all the other staffs are still dead wood, but Aaron's staff, like this image on the front of your bulletin, has budded with almond blossoms. Um, it's, it's a little bit, you know, strange to our ears, uh, a little bit different, but, but nonetheless, that was the way the Lord vindicated Aaron. And in Numbers 17.5, it says, the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. That's what's uh, in the image. It's written in Latin, but that's Numbers 17.5, you know, in that scroll surrounding that image of Aaron and his budded staff. That's God's way to say, Aaron is my chosen priest. He is the high priest. No, no, not anybody can just decide they want to be high priest. You have to be called by God to that. Um, and then the next chapter in Numbers, do you know how, look in your Bible and all of our English translations do these little captions? They're, they're, those are not um, original. They're just subtitles that we've inserted, the translators have inserted to help us understand, all right, what's this chapter about? What's this section about? And when you get to, to Numbers chapter 18, the, the little caption that the translators insert reads something like the duties of priests and Levites. Because Aaron is the priest. Aaron's descendants are going to be the priests, and, uh, and, and they all come from the Levites. And, you know, ex, uh, sorry, Numbers 18 reads something like this. Behold, I've taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They're a gift to you, given to the Lord to do the service of the tent of meeting. And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for, uh, for all that concerns the altar and all that is within the veil, and you shall serve. So do you get it? Like, this is not arbitrary. God has chosen these folks, and this is the way that he has established worship. And so along comes 
this other priesthood, and you're going, what's up with Melchizedek? What's up with somebody descended from Judah, that is Jesus, being a high priest? That, that can't work. That doesn't happen. Well, it does if the priesthood is founded on another calling, another um, uh, ordinance by God. In addition to Levi, there's another priesthood descended from the order of Melchizedek, right? And, and uh, we looked at Genesis last week, and, and there's only two places in the Old Testament where Melchizedek is mentioned, and the other place is Psalm 110. So um, I'm going to read you a, a couple of verses from Psalm 110 that talks about this other priesthood. And everybody's going, where, where does this other priesthood come from? Well, it begins by saying, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the presence of your enemies. And you stop right there. And who does that sound like? Does that sound like a priest? That sounds like a king. You know, ruling and sitting at the right hand and making the enemies, you know, the, the, the footstool and so on. But then it makes this turn and the same person is being referred to here. But now it says the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Um, Psalm 110 talks about this new order of priesthood that's not just a priest, but also a king. So previously you've got Judah, and the kings come from Judah, and that's Jesus' lineage. And then you've got Levi and you know, Aaron and Moses and all that. They come from that, and they get to be the priests. But Jesus is priest and king, and this is different. We've got to understand why is this the case. Well, Hebrews talks about this. It says in verse 11, look, the priesthood's imperfect. It's a placeholder. It's, it's, it was never meant to be permanent. Because if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Uh, in a, you know, a few weeks, we'll, we'll get to chapter 10 in Hebrews which kind of expands on this a little bit more. It's a long discussion. I remember, I, I, I promised you this deep dive. Uh, so, so we do have to kind of you know, get, the, get in the habit of, of chewing on some meat here instead of just our, our sippy cup. Um, so so we're, we're, we're hanging in here for a long extended discussion that even goes to chapter 10 where Hebrews says, since the law uh, has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would, they would have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So Hebrews is explaining that the ceremonial law was put in place to just hold the place, that, that the sacrifices, the ceremonies, the, the priesthood is, is pointing to something greater, something beyond. It would point to the full and final atonement for our sins that would, where God would completely justify his people through a high priest who's also our, our king of kings. That the ceremonial law is designed to lead us to Jesus. Um, 
you know, sort of thinking about like how when a lost child is found in a, in a mall or at, a, at, at some kind of big, you know, festival or whatever, you, you take that child and you go find, you, you, we tell our kids, look for the, the person in uniform, look for the police officer, look for the fire department person. So like the law is like that police officer takes that lost child and brings that child to his or her parents. It helps that child find his way home. That's what the ceremonial law is doing for us. Like a, like, a, like a kind officer taking us to our Father in heaven so that we might become, you know, uh, find our, our way home. Um, Paul explains this. In Galatians 3, he says, if, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But since the law could not do that, the law was our guardian until Christ Jesus came in order that we might be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. We don't need the police officer anymore. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The law is bringing us home so that we land on Christ. All those forms, all those ceremonies, all the smells and bells are leading us to Jesus so that we, we land on him. Um, the problem that developed with the ceremonial law is that people didn't recognize it's a placeholder. And the mistake that Israel was making and the mistake that, that continues to be made with a lot of ceremonies is that people tend to think that, that, that the ceremony itself is, is how we make you know, uh, atonement for sin or how we please God or whatever. That, and, and they don't recognize, no, the ceremony is there to lead you to something else, to point us to our need for atonement, our need for a priest. Um, and, and, and this is, you know, the mistake that sometimes we make in, in a lot of things. Um, and it reminds me of the billboard. If you're, if you're driving up 250 with me, you know, um, like I do, and you see the the electronic billboards, there's a Sheets ad where this guy um, has just got his arms full of all the different things on their apps uh, menu, you know, the, the, the cheese sticks and the jalapeno poppers and, you know, the pretzel, whatever. It's just all, all of that stuff. He's just got his arms loaded and his mouth is stuffed full of, I guess, the mozzarella sticks. And the whole billboard just says, why not make apps the meal? You know, why are the sheets not? Just, just go and glut yourself on all of these delicious, you know, uh, products that sheets will sell you, and you can make your dinner out of that. Well, the, why not? Well, A, because it's not healthy. Uh, B, because, well, that's not what the appetizer was invented for. The appetizer is meant to kind of, like, kind of whet your appetite for the real meal. Uh, the real thing that's coming, and don't confuse the one with the other. People sometimes assume that the ceremonies of the law become the substitute for the Savior, and that's never the way it was supposed to be. Look, I, I know this is a, a conversation that we're having uh, out of the Bible, and we think about Judaism, and now us, you know, as, as Christians, but this isn't, this isn't just for religious categories. Like, we do this all the time. There's sort of this magic that we invoke through um, the rituals and, and the ceremonies. Maybe, maybe they're religious ones, and maybe, maybe they're not necessarily religious. Because anything can become a ceremony that is designed to kind of maybe get the universe to bend toward blessing 
uh, and away from cursing us, right? Like, like, so this is where superstitions come from. Uh, the, the things that we do, if you do the ceremony right, or you say the words right, or you know, whatever that pattern of behavior is, then, then yeah, things are going to bend toward blessing and away, and away from a curse. Like, uh, I didn't know this, but some of you maybe who, are, who follow NASCAR, uh, if you've been to a NASCAR race, uh, good luck. I don't know that you, you I've, never, <laughs> I've never been to a sporting event and just thought, man, I could really use some, 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 some peanuts right now. But apparently, you can't go to a NASCAR race and go get, you know, roasted peanuts because God help you if you show up at NASCAR with a bag of, of peanut shells. There's some kind of bad juju about having peanut shells in a NASCAR race because somewhere, you know, decades ago, there was a, a bad crash and a driver died and they found peanut shells at the, uh, at the bottom, you know, on the racetrack where his car was. And so from that point forward, you're not allowed. We just don't do that. But you don't sell shells, uh, peanuts with shells on them at a NASCAR race. Superstition. Somehow that's just going to make, make it safer for the drivers not to have you know, peanut shells uh, in, in, in attendance. Uh, and, and, you know, athletes kind of are prone to doing, doing this. Serena Williams has her little pre, pre-match uh, ritual. She, she always wears her, her shower uh, slippers out onto the court, um, she, and then she'll change into her socks and her shoes. By the way, she wears the same socks the entire tournament. She ties her shoes a certain way, you know, um, before every, every match. And uh, before she serves, you'll, you'll notice she bounces the ball five times, um, you know, before, before serving. How about Michael Jordan? Um, you know, do you, do you remember, some of you old school basketball fans, do you remember Larry Bird and the Celtics and, and, the, and the basketball shorts that came up to here? Like that guy, holy cow, those are some short shorts. And then Michael Jordan shows up, you know, playing for the Bulls, and like overnight, basketball, you know, shorts went all the way down to the knees. Do you know why? Michael Jordan wanted extra long Bulls shorts so that they would cover his North Carolina blue shorts his lucky college basketball shorts that he wore underneath his Chicago Bulls shorts. And that's why the all, everybody's like, oh, he, well, you know, Michael Jordan's the best, so I got to be like him, so I'm going to wear my long shorts too. It all came because he was superstitious. Um, and, and then you get people like, uh, you know, Jennifer Aniston, not just athletes, but actors and actresses. She's got her little thing, you know, before she gets on an airplane, some interview that she was doing, she said, if I walk on an airplane, I always have to go on with my right foot first and then tap on the outside of the plane as she's, as she's boarding the flight. I always done it for luck. Look, I don't, you know, you, you, you can say these are just our habits and, and you wouldn't be wrong, but where did the habit come from? You know, somehow it, it moved from just habit to belief. It moved from sort of, a, a, you know, muscle memory to, to faith. Like, I have to do this. And, and you can call it superstition, you can call it luck, but really it's all about faith. What am I believing is going to bend the universe toward blessing and, and, and away from a curse? And so what I want to ask, and the question I want to pose to you is, where is the line? Where is the line in between superstition and religion? Like, Good religion, true, true religion, the, the kind of religion that pleases God. Where is that line between the, the, the ceremonies that God blesses and what he doesn't bless? 
And, and I'm gonna, I'll just take a stab at, at drawing the line. At least in the Old Testament, you, you could draw that line, a bright line, in between the ceremonial uh, religious laws that God prescribes, right? He, he prescribes these things that I want you to do in order to worship me versus all the rest of the ways that all the other people uh, and, and cultures might have imagined that they could leverage um, the, the spirits and the supernatural powers and their gods and deities and, and, and all sorts of things in order to get blessing or at least to avoid the curse. That's where the line was between superstition and religion. God is the Lord of, of lords and King of kings, and, and, and we have to approach him in a way that, that he prescribes rather than just sort of imagining, well, I can do it my way. And so whatever he's revealed, that's what true religion is, and whatever he hasn't, that's just superstition. That's just kind of hopeful, wishful thinking. You know, maybe I'll get lucky or, or whatever. And then you come to the New Testament, and the line gets moved. The line gets moved from in between the ceremonial laws that God has prescribed and, and all the other ways that people try to approach God on their own merits. The line of the sacrifices and the priestly order and all of the temple ceremonies, all of that gets moved because it gets fulfilled in Jesus. And so that line between religion and superstition in the New Testament gets moved to the foot of the cross. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God had prescribed in the Old Testament. It put any and all ceremonies that compete with the cross into the category of superstition. Why? Um, I think we get some help from C.S. Lewis in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I, I know it's a familiar story to a lot of you, so that's good. I mean, he, Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia to try to give children categories to understand like some of these themes. And, and one of the themes there, if you don't know the, the story, uh, Aslan is this lion, the, the Lion of Judah, right? He's, he's the Christ figure. And the white witch sort of represents the law, and she comes to Aslan demanding blood, demanding Edmund's life because he's a traitor. And the deep magic uh, says that, you know, when there's a traitor, that that traitor's blood will be shed. And so uh, the white witch meets with Aslan, and they reach an agreement. And to everybody's shock, in horror, Aslan is killed by the white witch. And his dead body is laying on the stone table. And Susan and Lucy are just beside themselves with grief. They can't imagine their hero has perished and that evil seems like it's won. And they're, they're, they're keeping guard over the corpse all night long. And finally, the sun comes up, the dawn breaks, and they hear this crack. And they don't know, you know what happened. And they realize the stone table itself has cracked, and Aslan is alive. And he's standing right before them. And they just can't make sense. How did this work? 
And Aslan explains to Susan and to Lucy that, yeah, the witch knew the deep magic, but she didn't know the deeper magic. He says it means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Lewis is giving us a category to understand the gospel where a willing victim who had committed no treachery gave himself for us died in the place of sinners so that God's foundational uh, promise to provide atonement for, for sinners would stand. That all who look to Jesus and call upon him for the forgiveness of our sins can know for sure that our sins really are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. So that's the new line. Uh, the line got moved from between the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament to, to you know, every other way of means of approaching God. And, and now all of a sudden, all the ceremonial laws are not necessary to, for us to keep. Instead, that line gets moved to the foot of the cross because Jesus has fulfilled those laws. And, it, and it's not the same. Well, I want to be careful here lest we start to imagine that, well, then the ceremonial laws, therefore, are useless. They're not. We don't observe them anymore, but they still teach us. Well, we, we don't perform, you know, all of those sacrifices. We, you know, we, we, we do need to understand what they're pointing to and what they represent. We need to see their significance, how they were pointing us to Jesus, who would say about himself, look, I uh, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. He meant his body. He was pointing to himself as the fulfillment of the temple. The temple was the, the, the place where heaven and earth would meet, where God would come down and people could ascend and they would meet with God. And it was this you know, singularity on earth. And Jesus says, I'm that. I'm the place where heaven and earth meet. He would say, uh, John the Baptist would say about him, he's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, if you don't understand the whole sacrificial order of the lambs and their atoning you know, uh, provision that they made, you're not going to understand why Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We, we're not going to understand how his blood purifies us from our sins, how he makes us clean and, and, and white as snow. And without the ceremonial law, we would have really no concept of how he is a high priest who before the throne of God, you know, we have a, a, a high priest who intercedes for us, who advocates for us, and who blesses us. Um, you know, a few hundred years ago now, one of our um, reformer, reformer fathers uh, named Francis Turretin was explaining the ceremonial law, and he says the ceremonial law can be viewed in two ways. Either with regard to doctrine and signification, or with regard to obligation and observance. We don't do that second part anymore, obligation and observance. The question is not 
whether it was abrogated as to doctrine. We confess that it still remains and is useful in many ways among Christians and that that mystical truth hidden under its shell is always the same and a perpetual necessity. We, we need to know what that ceremonial law is all about so that we can see Jesus more clearly, right? I, I know it's a deep dive. So let's get to, to how Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant, right? Verse 16 it says that Jesus has become a priest not on the basis of you know, genealogy or this legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Did that, um, as far as I'm aware, that's the only place in the Bible where Jesus is called you know, someone with an indestructible life. When we hear about the life of Jesus, aren't we we're more used to hearing words like abundant life uh, eternal life and new life. We don't hear anywhere else about the indestructible life of Jesus, but it's really important. Um, it's, it's based on how his life is something that cannot be destroyed. It cannot be removed. And, and, and some of you maybe grew up with the King James Version, and it reads a little bit different. Um, it talks about how Jesus was made not after the law of carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. And um, endless is a little bit different than indestructible, and, and I'm not a, a scholar, but the, the people who write the lexicons and the, uh, the Greek and Hebrew scholars will tell you that that's not, that's not a great translation. Because the, the word actually doesn't have to do with time. It has to do with, with quality. It, it mean, it's a cognate. It has the prefix ah, which means not, and then the root word is to dissolve. You can't dissolve Jesus. <laughs> you can't you can't put him in the lab, you know, and then put the acid on and dissolve him. He's indestructible. It doesn't have to do with time. It has to do with his quality. So the indestructible life is factual. You can't destroy Jesus. Nothing can defeat him. Not even death could defeat him, right? That's what the resurrection proved. And in light of the indestructible quality of Jesus' life, every person has a choice of how to regard him. Some people may choose, a lot of people actually, choose to live like they are indestructible. Not that Jesus is indestructible. They, they can't imagine that there's ever going to come a day, right, when their, their words or their actions are going to be held accountable. Instead, they just will choose to live independently of God's standards without regard for his indestructible word, without regard for his indestructible kingdom, without regard for the indestructible king. Um, and if this is you, then, then please recognize this is not how we were designed to live. Spiritually, that's on par with leaving this building, getting in your vehicle, and just driving down the road at whatever speed without any regard for the traffic lights, for the road signs, and you and I both know that will not end well. People and motor vehicles are not designed to drive 70 miles an hour into a mountain. We're not indestructible. And we need to reckon with reality. 
we need to reckon with what's indestructible. Because we're not. We can live our lives knowing that Jesus is indestructible and, and align our lives with what's permanent and, and what's real. To, 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 to go with those contours and to, to let our lives be a reflection of, of that reality, right? Um, I was thinking about this in regard to this stretch of, of interstate. Um, I-70 goes from, um, I think it's Maryland, all the way to Utah. And, and it's part of the, our country's inter, uh, interstate system. And I-70 was the, the last uh, full stretch of interstate to be completed about 30 years ago. And the, and the last section of I-70 to be completed was in Colorado in Glenwood Canyon. Um, and so I have an uncle that lives in Fruta, uh, near Grand Junction, Colorado. And so if you fly into Denver, you got to drive through the Rockies to get down uh, to Fruta. And, and so I've been, I've been through here a couple of times, and it's, it, it's just breathtakingly beautiful to drive this stretch of I-70. Uh, I wanted to, this is just a picture of it. This is Glenwood Canyon, that's the Colorado River. And I-7, this section goes about 12 miles, and it is uh, on record as the last section of interstate to be completed in our country, the most expensive section of interstate to be completed in our country, and the reason why is because it's the most beautiful. Uh, and it has won engineering awards. Like um, the Colorado Transporta Department of Transportation earned the 1993 Outstanding Civil Engineering Achievement Award for the American Society of Civil Engineers for this section of interstate. Why? Because it reckons with reality. And it follows the contours of, the, of Glenwood Canyon and the Colorado River in a way that, okay, these, these are rocks. These are indestructible. And yet, we can coalesce with these. And, 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 and it's a pleasure to drive through, except when it's snowing and raining and really, really death-defying. Um, so you don't want to do that. But when it's beautiful, it, it's just it's gorgeous. And, and people travel just to drive that stretch. And that's what our lives can be like. When we reckon with the reality that Jesus is indestructible, and instead of fighting that, we, we, we acknowledge that, and we go with the grain of his kingdom and say, I want to follow you, and I want to be a pathway uh, for others to follow you too, then he gets glory, people can, can worship him, we can see his beauty, you know, sort of thinking about our lives as that stretch of interstate. This is, this is um, how God's calling us to, to reckon with reality, to go with that, the flow of his kingdom, his indestructible kingdom. And that gives us this permanent hope, by the way. Um, this, this indestructible life isn't just you know, like for our, so that we, we who are perishable don't, don't perish in light of what's imperishable. No, the, the indestructible life of Jesus gives us hope. Because when we acknowledge his indestructibility, he then becomes our foundation. He who cannot be destroyed means that when we build our lives on him, we are united to his indestructibility. We all have problems. And we all have places where we're experiencing pain, where we're experiencing doubt, where we're experiencing difficulty, and, and don't you wonder, don't, aren't, we're all the same. 
We have times when we wonder, God, do you hear me? Have I done something wrong? Are you paying attention? Are you asleep? Are you bored? Is, is my life just not as exciting as other, other Christians who seem to have your you know, direct line? When your relationships go south, people betray you, your health goes off the rails, your job is awful, your marriage is awful, your kids are awful. Like, like in those seasons, what goes through our head? What goes through our heart? Is it the indestructibility of Jesus? What about sin? Like we can wonder, like, Lord, what's going on? I feel like I've been checking all the boxes. I'm doing it right. Well, no, what if no, I, I'm really messing up? Can that separate us from his love? No. We're, we are told clearly that, that sin is destructive. Sin, the wages of sin is death. But what happens when the destructive power of our sin meets the indestructible grace of God in Jesus Christ? What happens when those two things meet? It's, it's, it's not a trick question. It's not like that old conundrum of what happens when the immovable force is met by the, I'm sorry, the immovable object is met by the irresistible force. Like, you know, ooh, I don't know. This isn't like that at all. The answer is pretty simple. When, when our sin meets the indestructible grace of God in Jesus and his gospel it's like bugs on our windshield. When you drive through Glenwood Canyon, you want to stay on the highway. You want to stay in your lane. It's not going to be good if you veer off. But every bug that hits your windshield, it's like, it's like our sins, our failures, bouncing and just splatting on the indestructible grace of God for us in Jesus. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. When he is your foundation, you cannot lose. You cannot be separated. You cannot, be, you, you cannot lose that hope. And that is why this is so permanent for us. This is the power of Jesus' priesthood based on his indestructible life. And this is why you and I, in those moments where we're wondering, Lord, do you even hear me? Yes. Don't look at our circumstances. Look at Jesus. Look at the power of his indestructible life. Look at his priesthood rather than our ceremonies and our, you know, things that we do or don't do. Look at him and have hope. Let me pray for us. Lord, we give you thanks for Jesus, our high priest who loves us and who gave himself for us. We give you thanks for him who has an indestructible life that guarantees that we can't be separated from you. We can't, not even, the, not even the destructive power of sin is a match for the grace of God for us in Jesus. Lord, would you help us to choose uh, wisely with regard to, to the contours of reality, uh, that we would live our lives on the foundation that is Christ rather than challenge that or imagine that we are indestructible. Lord, give us repentance for those places. And give us hope for the places where um, 
where we feel darkness, where we feel doubt, and where we need your hope. We pray in Jesus' name.